Welcome to the Every Voice Now podcast, where we bring voices of color into the spotlight. In every episode, you'll hear stories of our authors of color, how God led them to write their books, and the challenges they had to overcome along the way. everyone, it's Helen Lee, one of the producers of the Every Voice Now podcast, and I have the pleasure of introducing today's guest. Jay Kim serves as the lead pastor at Westgate Church in Silicon Valley, and he's on the leadership team of the Regeneration Project. He's also the author of two IVP titles, the 2020 book Analog Church, which was an outreach magazine resource of the year and won the Gospel Coalition Book Award, and more recently, Jay authored Analog Christian which also won a Gospel Coalition Award of Distinction in Christian Living. Jay has a really interesting personal story, and I think you'll appreciate hearing him share about navigating twists and turns in both his personal life as well as in his vocational journey, as well as what it was like to launch a book in the pandemic. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Jay Kim. I am excited to welcome Jay Kim to the Every Voice Now podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Helen. Well, on this show, uh, we love to learn, especially about the ethnic identity journeys of our guests. If you're willing, I'd love for you to tell us about your ethnic background and then just key moments in your own ethnic identity journey that you can remember. Yeah, I'm Korean American. I was born in Incheon, South Korea just sort of on the western seaboard of South Korea. I don't remember it, though. My mother and I moved to California when I was really young. I think I was about four. Mm. And there's a whole you know long backstory with that. My mom and dad had a not a great marriage, mm. and they were not followers of Jesus when they got married. But my mother had literally sort of an overnight encounter with the risen Christ sort mm-hmm. of experience when I was two. Yeah. And that changed everything for her, her perspective. Mm And she began to see our environment as one that was not conducive to raising a son uh, Mm -hmm. the way she wanted to. So she um, loved my father and worked with him for a long time and really begged him and and prayed for him that he might sort of turn his life around. But Mm -hmm. it was getting increasingly volatile and and unsafe, really. So long story short, my mother, you know, packed our things and her sister, my aunt, lived here in California specifically in the San Francisco Bay Area, kind of Mm. right in the heart of Silicon Valley. I don't think it was called Silicon Valley at the (laughs) time, but, you know, kind of right in the heart of it. So we moved here and I never left. (laughs) It's Mm. been, you know, 30, oh gosh, 38 years or something. Yeah. So, I mean, I left for little spurts here and there, but Mm -hmm. so I moved to the States, you know, so I'm an immigrant and my mother, single mom, immigrant story, kind of standard immigrant story worked two, three jobs Mm. just to make ends meet. So until I got to school, I just stayed home with my aunt and my aunt didn't speak any English. So I just spoke Korean growing up until I went to first grade when I was six. And my mom just kind of thrust me into first grade with no sort of, I was this little Korean boy that was isolated in my aunt's house all day. Oh my goodness. Thrust into a public school. So, you know, I didn't speak a lick of English. I got thrown into ESL class, English as a second language. 
So, you know, you're asking about markers, identifiers that were really significant for me. That was one for sure. I have very vivid memories of how just isolated and, you know, marginalized really that I, that mm-hmm. I felt on a variety of levels at that age. And then also a part of the, the story is that as a single mom, my mother just trying to make ends meet, you know, would constantly be on the search for cheaper rent and, mm-hmm. you know, maybe an extra bedroom, whatever. So I moved a lot. I went to four different elementary schools and two different high schools and then a middle school. So I went to wow. seven schools in 12 years, you know, oh so my gosh. I never had a chance to really develop deep roots mm-hmm. and meaningful friendships. So that's a, you know, it's not one sort of moment in time, but as far as my journey goes, that's mm-hmm. a big part of it as well, that I just, I felt like a rootless kid, you know, mm-hmm. for most of my life. And that compounds itself with being an immigrant. You know, you yeah. already have a sense of navigating what it means to belong in a country initially that isn't your own. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as you grow up, you know, I, I became very Americanized in some ways and, and wrestled quite a bit with my own identity and what it means to be Korean American mm-hmm. or am I American Korean, those sorts <laughs> of things. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of played out in my adult life as well. And even in, you know, my ministry journey, but yeah, those things stand Mm -hmm. out, you know, going to first grade Mm -hmm. without speaking a lick of English. And then just generally my entire sort of elementary, middle and high school life, just having a very rootless experience, you know? Mm. So, and then in hindsight, that's all kind of a downer, but in hindsight, I feel so rooted now. And I think one of the gifts of my story is that I don't take it for granted. You know, I'm mm. so grateful for the sort of deep roots I've been able to to build and, and develop in, in recent years. Mm. Thank you for sharing all that. Did you have a consistent experience with, with the Korean church? Because I know that's for many of us who grew up in you know, second generation Korean Americans have had some kind of touch point with the Korean church in some way, shape or form that has been a part of our own ethnic story. I'm curious to know if that was at all true for you as well. Yeah, absolutely true. Yeah. So my mother, again, still to this day, the most passionate follower of Jesus I know. And mm. for those who are familiar with sort of the the passionate Korean moms who love the Lord, they all have this sort of fire in their bellies, you know, and it's mm-hmm. like, man, we're going to be at church four days a week kind of thing and <laughs> early morning prayer and all day Saturday. And so I grew up that way. I grew up in the Korean American church. And really beautifully, church was safe harbor for me, you know, mm-hmm. when mm-hmm. Monday to Friday was so, it just felt like trying to not drown in the sort of treacherous open waters of mm-hmm. feeling on the outside, Saturdays and Sundays going to church. And I spent literally like all day Saturday, all day Sunday at church with friends. And <laughs> yeah, it was safe harbor. Yeah. Those were the days I looked forward to the most growing mm-hmm. up being at church. That's amazing. I'd love to hear now that we've talked a little bit about your ethnic story and your ethnic identity. I'd love for you to like kind of draw from that to tell us about how those experiences, both your ethnic identity journey and maybe some of your personal story, how that's impacted the way you view the world around you and in particular how you view church. Yeah. I mean, there's so much. That's such a wonderful Mm -hmm. question. There's so much I think I could say about it. The first thing, and maybe the most important thing that comes to mind for me is I think one of the through lines that has been consistent 
from my own experience and my own story. And then as I've had the privilege of being able to, you know, pastor in local churches for the last couple of decades, I think I've been able to identify a very clear through line. And I think that through line is that everybody is alone, Mm. or at least they feel alone. You know, Kurt Thompson has this fantastic line. I think it's in his book, The Soul of Shame. Um, He's got several books that are all wonderful, but he says, I think in The Soul of Shame, he says, and he's actually borrowing both, and this is what I love about him, he's borrowing both from biblical theology and the world of like neuroscience, you know, and human psychology. And he says, human beings enter the world looking for someone looking for them. Yes. It's such a beautiful, wonderful line. And that is true, I think, of all humans. You know, when Jenny and I had our two children, it's such an emotional experience. And I had read beforehand they were going to do this, but when they do it, it's so powerful when the child is born and then immediately they they kind of wipe the child down. And then they the first thing they do is they do skin to skin, you know? Mm-hmm. So they take the baby and they bring the our daughter first. And then our son a few years later brought them over to Jenny and had Jenny hold the child mm-hmm. against her chest, you know? And then both times I remember the nurses would say, Look at your daughter. Look at your mm-hmm. daughter. And initially I remember thinking they were just being sort of like, you know beautifully poetic. Like, look at your, look at your child. And I realized, no, they're being like practical, literal. They're actually Mm -hmm. saying, make eye contact with your child Mm -hmm. because it actually really matters. And Mm -hmm. the science tells us it matters. But long before we had science, the scriptures told us it mattered. You know, this reality that God had woven us in his beautiful imagination long before we were even carried in the wombs of our mothers. And because we are made in love and made for love, we are, as Dr. Thompson says, we are born into the world looking to make eye contact with the one who loves us. You know, it's Mm. almost an expression of God's love for us. Mm. And a friend of mine recently, I think he was borrowing this line from somebody he read, but a friend of mine recently said, you know, Jay, all of us are just grown up adolescents. Mm. (laughs) And what he meant by that was... Some of the stuff we, the insecurity, the loneliness, mm. the isolation, the feeling of, you know, do I fit? Do I belong? Does someone see me? Mm. Those things don't really go away. Yeah. We just become far more sophisticated in how we hide those things. Yeah. And that's the through line. I think my story forced me to become so viscerally aware of my own aloneness in mm. the world. And the fact that I didn't have to live that way, that it was Mm -hmm. possible to belong. And I have seen that over and over again. And I've seen it as the bedrock of so much that ails us. When I, you know, as a pastor, people get angry and upset about X, Y, and Z. And you get the, you know, the email from the congregant who's upset about whatever. Mm -hmm. And it's just uncanny how if I can take a deep breath, not take it personally, Mm-hmm. And lead with curiosity instead of contempt mm-hmm. and say, Hey, what's happening here? You know, yeah. tell me more. Mm-hmm. Um, instead of let me tell you why you're wrong. If I right. can just say, Tell me more, what's going on? I want to know what's the thing beneath all of this thing. Not because I want to, you know, condemn you, but because I, I'm curious and because mm-hmm. I, I want to lean into compassion and empathy. Mm-hmm. I've realized that when I do that, almost always, no matter what the anger was about, 
it comes down to the same thing. People just feel mm. really alone mm. and they feel really unseen and really unheard. Yeah. So, yeah, I, you know, I, and I think that sort of encompasses the entire thing. Like no matter what it, what it is, no matter what work I'm doing, whether it's pastoring or loving my family, mm-hmm. connecting deeply with my wife or writing a book mm-hmm. or whatever, it's so strange and beautiful in some ways. But it all for me, I think comes down to just very, simple but complex human realities that we're looking Mm. for someone looking for us. And Mm. so, yeah, those are some thoughts. I love how I'm hearing this kind of reflection of how God uniquely shaped your story that now uniquely shapes you to do ministry, to write, Mm. to do all these things. I I love seeing kind of the holistic way that is all coming together. So I'd love to talk a little bit more about even your entry into ministry, because I know you majored in business in college and you spent some time doing (laughs) The banking thing. Um, yeah. And then eventually, of course, you ended up becoming a pastor. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about that vocational journey. And if there's any particular way that your own kind of ethnic story intersects with some of those decisions, I'd love to hear a little bit about how those interplay. Sure. Yeah. So I graduated high school and, you know, I had, like we talked about earlier, I had this really beautiful church experience in the ethnic church and a Korean American church. But one of the consequences of that, when I went to college, I realized that my faith had actually been built not on the resurrected Christ. It had actually Mm. been built on that safe harbor of belonging I found Mm. with these, you know, friends who just accepted me and youth pastors who loved me and small group leaders who took me to eat ice cream and shoot hoops, you know, and Mm. helped me feel not alone in a world that felt very lonely. But my faith had not been built on a really rich, robust, deep discipleship to Jesus. So what happened was when that sort of youth group structure was no longer, because I was in mm-hmm. college, I couldn't keep going to the youth group thing. <laughs> right. And my church at the time didn't have like a, a college ministry or anything like that. My faith came crumbling down. So I went through a, what is now sadly a very common sort of deconstruction of mm-hmm. faith mm-hmm. season. And I actually don't think deconstruct, I think it's misunderstood. I actually think it's good to question and to, you know, delve deeper and and doubt. There's room for doubt, all those things. But my deconstruction journey at that time when I was 18 took me just toward agnosticism, Mm. you know, and I just thought all this Jesus nonsense, it can't be true. So all that to say, because of that, I felt really lost and like Mm. I was floundering and I didn't know what to do. I also needed a job. So I don't recall how it happened, but I found out there was an opening for a bank teller position and that they would hire 18-year-olds with no experience (laughs) at the local Wells Fargo bank. So I Mm -hmm. went, applied, I got the job. And for whatever reason, I was pretty decent at it. And I did not know what I was going to do with my life. Mm -hmm. So because I was decent at banking, I just thought, well, you know, my branch manager, he's been doing this for 30 years and seems Mm -hmm. to have a pretty decent life and makes a decent living. I guess I'll just do this. Which then led me, so I asked him, what should I major in if I want to do what you do? And he said, well, major in business management. So I said, okay. <laughs> so that's why I did that. I worked mm-hmm. in banks and I kind of made my way up and became a like an assistant branch manager at a city bank and majored in business management and thought that that's what I was going to do. But I was, honestly, Helen, I was pretty miserable. I didn't mm-hmm. like my job. I liked my coworkers, but I didn't like what I did every day. And I realized during those few years when I was sort of far from God and away from the church, one of the reasons I didn't like what I did was 
I just had this real sense. This is incongruent with who I am. I don't think I wasn't really all that spiritual at the time, but it was a very spiritual exercise. I just had this sense like, I don't think this is what I was put on the planet to do. Mm. I don't know who put me on the planet, but I don't (laughs) think this is the reason, you know, I had that sort of angst. And then long story short, in my very early 20s, my senior year of college, through a community of guys who continued to love me and who were at the church where I had grown up, I made my way back toward Jesus and back Mm. toward the church. And a few of the guys in that group, they were small group leaders in our high school ministry. And they're mm-hmm. like, hey, why don't you sort of co-lead one of our groups? So mm-hmm. I, I actually, instead of high school, I, I led a, a seventh grade boys small group, okay. you know, after having sort of journeyed back toward Jesus for a while. Yeah. And that changed my life. That changed mm-hmm. my life. And I fell in love. And it answered the question. It was like, I think this is what I'm supposed to do. Mm-hmm. So I dropped out of college my senior year. I enrolled at a small Bible college in town and Mm -hmm. decided I was going to become a youth pastor. And that kind of, you know, led me down that path. And as you know, it's really interesting as far as my own story, it's interesting to think about why I got into banking. I sort of stumbled onto that bank teller job, but I remember once I had the job, I remember being overrun with this sense of, okay, this job can offer me security and stability. And, you know, being an immigrant and then being the immigrant child of a single immigrant mother Mm -hmm. who had to really hustle to make ends meet. Mm -hmm. There were long stretches of our life where we lived in like a studio apartment. Mm -hmm. I slept on the couch. And I remember I, I was so driven by this desire to not live that life. You know, I had this long standing dream as a kid man, all I want is a house with a yard, mm-hmm. you know, those sorts of things. I remember when I was in middle school, I just thought only millionaires had cable television mm-hmm. because some of my friends had cable TV. And I just thought that must cost like a thousand bucks a month, How do you, you know? Mm-hmm. So I remember I had this goal, I'm going to get cable TV when mm-hmm. I'm older. And so I remember my freshman year of college, I got cable television <laughs> and I just thought, I did it. I've arrived. I've achieved the American <laughs> dream. I have ESPN now. And uh, yeah, so I was really driven by that sort of thing. But, you know, the gospel, the good news of Jesus, when I encountered Christ in my early 20s, I vividly remember that sort of fear, just being freed from it, mm. you know, and feeling like, man, that's not, you don't have to live that story. God will take care of you. And uh, yeah, it's interesting. Mm. And I still have a lot of work to do, but thankfully that sort of sense of stability and safety in Christ Mm. has sustained for the last 20 years or so. Mm. I love to hear that. Was your mom delighted that you decided to move into the pastorate? Yeah, she was. I mean, first, she was mostly delighted when I started going back to church. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously she was heartbroken when I stopped going to church and stopped following Jesus. Those were some of the roughest years that she and I had in our relationship. Mm. Understandably so. And then a couple of years after that, when I enrolled in Bible college and decided I was going to become a youth pastor, yeah, she was over the moon for sure. <laughs> and still is. You and know, still, still is. is. Yeah. <laughs> well, as you look back, even on some of the things you wanted to do, some of your vocational dreams, et cetera, was writing books part of that dream ever? Or when did that even idea enter your head that this might be something you'd want to do? 
write yeah. a book or more than one. You've written multiple books, not just these. Yeah, I've always enjoyed writing. So I remember in the mid to late 2000s, I started blogging, you know? Mm. And so the blog, I was just blogging regularly while I was a youth pastor and a college ministry pastor, and then eventually planted a church with a friend. During that whole season, I was blogging a lot. And when I was blogging a lot, I remember for sure I had this dream. Mm. I want to write a book and I'm going to write a book. And I was Mm. to an unhealthy extent, I think at certain points, I was fixated on this idea. And I remember I took a few stabs at it a couple of times. I took like two weeks off of work and went and stayed in you know a friend's back house and tried to write all day. And I remember I, I really did. I, I tried to write a book. And long story short, kind of in the mid-2010s, nothing panned out. And I realized I don't have anything important or helpful to say. I'm just going <laughs> to stop. And it was when mm-hmm. I stopped trying and even desiring to write a book Hmm. that I ended up signing a book contract. It's so (laughs) strange. It is so strange. And you know, I tell people this, sometimes people ask me like, how'd you write a book? How can I write a book sort of thing? And the first thing I tell them is, you know, the best way to write a book is to stop trying to write a book. (laughs) (laughs) At least that was true in my experience. And what I don't mean is stop writing. What I Mm -hmm. mean is for Mm -hmm. me, I think what shifted was instead of trying so hard to write a book, I started asking the question, what is most helpful to people that I can offer them? Mm. And what's the best medium to offer that? Clearly, preaching and teaching is one of those mediums. So mm-hmm. I'll keep doing that. But maybe there are other mediums. But what what's helpful? You know, mm-hmm. And that's where the whole book thing came from, I think. Mm-hmm. I just started offering some of this stuff in conversation with people. And then those people started saying to me, instead of me wanting to write a book so bad, they started saying, have you ever thought about writing that down. Like, Mm -hmm. I think other people should hear that and read that. And that's really how it happened. You know, you were on the first phone call I ever had with Mm -hmm. InterVarsity Press, you know? and I was, I remember. And that was, you know, it was a connection through a mutual friend. And I remember the connection happened because that mutual friend said, this is important content, I think, that would help Mm -hmm. a lot of people you should probably think about writing it as a book. Let mm-hmm. me put you in touch with yeah. the team at IVP. And so, yeah, that's kind of how it happened. And now, yeah, I'm just really grateful. I mean, you know this world much better than I do. It's so relational, which mm. I really love. So at this point, it just feels like I'm in the Christian writing community family. Before we continue our conversation, I wanted to let you know about Seminary Now, an online, on-demand video educational platform for pastors, lay leaders, and anyone who wants to continue learning and growing. Featuring many of your favorite IVP authors, including previous guests on this podcast, such as Esau McCauley, Nicole Lim, Sandra Van Ofstel, and many more. These video courses and certification programs deliver exclusive biblical, theological, and practical ministry training from a diverse group of leading educators and thought leaders. Accessible, convenient, Seminary Now courses cover ministry subjects like preaching, evangelism, mental health, racial reconciliation, women in ministry, and much more. So visit seminarynow.com and start learning today. You're listening to the Every Voice Now podcast, and I'm Helen Lee. Today, we're talking with author Jay Kim. Jay, your first book, Analog Church, 
launched at a pretty crazy time. It was right at the beginning of the pandemic, if I remember correctly. So tell us what on earth that experience was like. Yeah, well, the irony of it, for those who don't know the book, yeah, my first book was called Analog Church. And the the subtitle is Why We Need Real People, Places, and Things in the Digital Age. Yeah. So the book is actually about why embodied, in-person <laughs> church communities matter. Right. And I mean, you know this, book writing is a long process. It's not like I knew the pandemic was going to happen. Right. I mean, I started writing the book two years before it came out. Yeah. The release date had been set a year before mm-hmm. it was going to come out. And mm-hmm. it just so happened the release date was March of 2020. So our church had to, I had to go on Facebook and do this video about how we weren't going to gather in person two weeks before we were going to release a book about why it's important to gather in person. <laughs> oh my gosh. So, I mean, yeah, I lost a lot of sleep. I had a lot mm. of emails and phone calls with the crew at InterVarsity mm. Press. And we weren't scrambling. I was really grateful for the team. They were very calm and very tempered. Mm. I was kind of scrambling, like, what do we do? Do we <laughs> yeah, do yeah. this? This is weird. No one can meet. And I'm going to release a book saying, you should meet. <laughs> like, does this make any sense? Should we delay? Right. And yeah, the team was really helpful. And they just said, hey, like, it'll be all right. You know, the goal is for the book to live for a long time, not to mm-hmm. make some sort of splash now and then die. Yeah. So let's release it and let's just surrender it to the Lord and whatever mm-hmm. God does, he does. And in hindsight, I could not be more grateful for the timing. Mm-hmm. I mean, not for the pandemic. I'm not grateful sure. that there was a virus, but I mean, the timing, because if there was anything I would have wanted to say about what it means to be the church in the midst mm-hmm. of all the confusion that pandemic sort of thrust us into, mm-hmm. it would have been the book. Yeah. And so it was such a gift to be able to have the book to say, you know, here's what I think. Yeah. Like the wise thing to do, the sort of loving thing to do for the common good right now is for us to not meet. Mm-hmm. But Let's really lean into how incongruent and incomplete this season feels Mm, so that when we're out of it, we realize, man, we really need each other in embodied ways. And the book allowed me to do that. So Mm. it was a strange experience for sure. I don't want to ever really have that experience again, but I'm I'm grateful (laughs) that I did. You've had kind of a very different experience, I think, with with your first book. I'm guessing it's been a little different. With the second book, maybe not as not as much of that kind of yeah. confusion and such. What are some things that have been notably different for you? Like, did it help that you had the experience of writing the first book so it was like much easier the second time or not sure necessarily? It no, it wasn't easier. It was more enjoyable, though. Oh, good. Uh, I think mm-hmm. the second book. Yeah, I've told people the second book is really just a prayer for me. Mm-hmm. So I feel like I was able to be more pastoral more of my emotions are on the page pages mm-hmm. of the second book than on, in the first. The first book is, um, it's not technical. It's certainly not an academic book, but I'm just, I'm trying to present particular problems and mm-hmm. I'm trying to prove very particular points. You know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. the second book, I didn't feel like I had to prove any points or make mm-hmm. any points. I just felt like I had to confess things about my own mm-hmm. life and talk about how, the fruit of the spirit has been so helpful for me. Yeah. Yeah. It was more enjoyable to write, not easier. I mean, mm, just mm. one of the reasons why I enjoy writing in general is because it is hard. It's one of the few difficult things in my life that I also mm. deeply enjoy. So I don't think that'll ever go away. I don't expect that writing will ever become easy for me. 
but for sure, I, I enjoy the process of it. And the second book especially was really, really enjoyable to, mm. to write. Well, I loved that you dedicated that second book to Harper, which I first I thought, Harper, I wonder if he's thinking like Harper Lee. Then I was, no, that's his daughter. So tell yeah. me about, <laughs> yeah, tell me about that choice and why you did that. And I'm guessing she might be an aspiring author, of course, because you called her your favorite author. Yeah. So tell me more about that as well. Yeah. So my daughter, Harper, she's seven. We also have a son named Simon, who's four. And, you know, when I was writing Analog Christian, when it came out, Harper was seven, but because it came out this year. But when I began writing it, she was five and we were in the, in the pandemic, you know? Mm -hmm. And so she was home with me. We were home mm -hmm. together while mm -hmm. I was writing this book. And she's always loved reading. She began reading mm -hmm. at a pretty early age. She's always loved books. And she was about three or four. She started writing, you know, mm -hmm. and by the time I started writing the second book, she would spend a lot of time as I was on the computer typing away, she would sit at the dining table next to me and write her own little stories Aww. and show me. And and then she would ask to read what I was writing and it made no sense to her, but she would <laughs> love reading it anyways. Mm. So she was my little partner as I wrote this book in, during COVID. And you're right. She does you know, when she goes to school and they do the whole like, what do you want to be when you grow up? Without hesitation, she says, I want to be an author. Mm. You know, she wants to write. So I, I love seeing that in her. So, and I love reading her little stories. So, and she writes Aww. a lot of them. So I dedicated it to her because she, yeah, she was my little writing partner during the um, whole process. I love that. I love that partly because this is a bit from my own story. I, I was like your daughter, love to read mm. from a young age, love to write road stories, but there was never, Anybody who stopped to say, you should think about this like as a career, even though it was like really clear in my own childhood and through high school, like my interest leaned definitely in the areas of writing and publishing. But yeah, there was never kind of a person to say, to affirm that. So I had to find my way eventually. It took like a long yeah. time. So I love that you're already forming her and, and helping her and affirm her, her giftedness and her interest in her passions and skills in this way from this age. It makes me feel like, Yes, this is a great, great for this next generation to know already, like when they're young, you know, this could be something yeah. they could do because we need more Korean Americans in publishing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And writing and doing all the things. So, yeah, yeah, I love that. I love that. Yeah. I'd love to hear a little bit just how the act of writing and publishing these books has changed you, changed your life. Maybe not. Maybe it hasn't changed your life at all. And you did them and you, you're moving on to other things now. Or maybe there have been ways that it has had kind of indelible imprint on your life that you might not have expected. would love to hear some of those kinds of reflections if you have any. Yeah. You know, one of my favorite things that writing in a sort of public way has done for me is the relationships. Mm. You know, yeah, just writing in this way, publishing through a highly respected and well-known publishing house like InterVarsity Press. It's, you know, one of the byproducts and real gifts is that it's just it's given me the opportunity to be in the room with people mm. that I otherwise never would have had the chance to be in the room with. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, just to speak very frankly here, there are pitfalls to that mm. and ego and pride and navigating some of those things. But I also, I have a beautiful, wonderful wife who keeps me in check with those things and is... <laughs> my biggest fan and simultaneously just utterly unimpressed with all the other, you know, <laughs> trappings that come with it. 
And then I have an incredible team that I work with here at the local church mm. that remind me, they're not telling me this needs to be true. They're reminding me of what is true about me, that I am first and foremost a local church guy. I, mm. I tell people all the time, I don't think I'm really like a writer. I think that I am a pastor who's been given the incredible gift of being able to write a little mm. bit. So mm. I try as much as possible to write with our community in mind. So one of the things that's changed in a beautiful way is just the people I've gotten to meet. And mm. a lot of those people have become genuinely, they've become friends. Mm. And I'm so utterly grateful for that, you know? And some of these guys, a few of them have truly, they've changed my life. And I think have become uh, men and women that I'll stay connected to maybe for the rest of my life, mm. God willing. Mm. So that's been the best part. Outside of that, yeah, you know, navigating work that is public has been challenging and helpful. It's, you know, this because you, your work is quite public as well. It feels, uh, you feel quite exposed when you mm. release these ideas into the world, you know, and especially the second book, Analog Christian. There are parts of it for me that are very personal. Mm -hmm. And it's just a daunting thing to think mm -hmm. about. There are people out there that are reading me, you know, mm -hmm. like this deeply personal stuff about me, but I also consider it a gift. So just trying to navigate that has been interesting. Yeah. Have you had to weather moments of like, critique where it's been now that you, you're talking about how there's so much of you, you know, especially in the second book, have you had yeah. to deal with that kind of feedback that has felt in some ways or shape or form personal and how have you dealt with that? Yeah, I think, you know, any public work critique is a part of it. You know, mm -hmm. I don't think yeah. anybody ever, literally no one ever mm -hmm. creates a public work that is unanimously applauded without a single critic. That just <laughs> is not the case. So, yeah, I mean, I had friends before I published the first book. I had friends who had published books and I remember several of them sort of tried to prepare me like, hey, you mm -hmm. got to be ready. And they gave me practical advice, like don't read the reviews and don't do this. <laughs> and But, the, you know, I didn't listen to their advice <laughs> the reviews, uh, with the first book. And it was really hard. Yeah. Some mm -hmm. of the critique and it's, you know, the book was really well received. So it's yeah, not like everyone it criticized it, but, you know, it's always like the 10 compliments don't matter. It's the one criticism mm -hmm. that sticks with you. And so, yeah, that was really hard, but you know, full circle in our conversation, a really helpful tool for me was to be pastoral in those moments. And so I started asking the question, okay, there's probably something beneath this. This isn't really about me. You know, it feels and sounds like it's about me, but it's not. There's other mm -hmm. things. In fact, in Analog Christian, I tell a story about someone critiquing my first book. And I, I actually did that. And it was scathing. I mean, it felt very vitriolic, personal, and it was very public. They didn't just critique me on like Amazon reviews. They started tweeting about why my oh. first book was just wrong and oh, wow. a mess and no one should read it, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And it was, it felt very personal. And I was so angry at first. And then prayerfully, I just thought, like, okay, let me just do, what if this person was my congregant? What would mm. I do? And so I DM'd him and we mm. started talking. And then it ended up being this really beautiful mm. sort of like, ah, I see what's going on. And, mm. and I own some things. I told him like, you know what? You're right. Like I could have probably mm. acknowledged more of that in this, in this first book. And thank you for helping 
me get better, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so now he and I, I think we would consider ourselves like Twitter friends, you know? And Aww. he said, I might be out in California in 2024. Would love to grab a cup of coffee. So those sorts of mm-hmm. things have been helpful for me is to not see criticism as the author of a book that's being criticized, but to see criticism as a pastor, you know, mm-hmm. and ask the question, okay, there's probably hurt here, you know, mm-hmm. and, and maybe I exacerbated that hurt with what I wrote and mm-hmm. wasn't sensitive enough. So I'm going to reach out. So yeah, obviously mm-hmm. I can't do that with everybody, but yeah. Um, yeah. just taking that posture has been helpful. Yeah. Well, I love that idea that the books are not, I mean, they're printed, they're published. So you, in some ways you feel like, oh, it's like they're, it's like the end of the process, but actually in some ways, the way what you're describing, it's the beginning of opening up all kinds of new relationships, conversations yeah. and opportunities. I love that. I love that. It doesn't end with the book. The book is in some ways the beginning. Yeah. 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 New, That's that, that would be my highest hope. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That it would, even if I don't interact with a person, my hope for anything I write is that it begins a conversation that continues in your life. Jay, this has been really delightful. I thoroughly enjoyed getting a chance to talk to you and learning more about your story and just the ways that God has been working in and through you and using these books for his church, for his kingdom. And I'm really so glad that IBP got the privilege to be able to work with you on these two books and hopefully there'll be more. So Yeah. Uh, thanks so much, Helen. Yeah. So much love and respect for what you do. And yeah, it's been really fun. And now we want to share with all of you, our listeners, that you can get Analog Church and Analog Christian at ivypress.com. And if you use the code EVN40 at checkout, you'll get 40% off these titles and free U.S. shipping. That's code EVN40. And if you'd like to learn more about Jay, visit his website and read his blog at jkimthinks.com. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the Every Voice Now podcast brought to you by IVP. Our producers and hosts are Paloma Lee and Helen Lee. If you're enjoying our show, we would welcome your reviews and recommendations. You can also support our efforts financially at everyvoicenow.com. And we'd love to hear from you directly anytime. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter at everyvoicenow. Or visit the site for show notes, transcripts, and more. And join us next time for another inspiring episode.